All right. So tonight I'm talking about one of my favorite topics of all time, the books of the Psalms. Uh, if you look at the, the photo behind the print, it says the book of Psalms. Uh, that's actually a misnomer. And I'll get to that. But my title is Psalms, Our Words to God, God's Word to Us. That actually comes from a, a scholar named Walter Brueggemann, who said, "God, um, our words to God have become God's words to us so that we may pray them to God. So there's this reciprocal nature to the Psalms. Now, I don't know what your expectation is for the Psalms because the Psalm is near and dear to people's hearts. Uh a lot of people have their favorites that they go to in times of need and sorrow and joy and petition. Uh, and some people think of it and have described it as Israel's hymn book. You know, we have a hymn book that we use on Monday mornings, and it's usually broken up between God the Father, and then there's a whole bunch on God the Son, and then a whole bunch on God the Spirit. And those songs never get sung um, because the Pentecostals are writing their own songs. No one who sings hymns sings songs to the Spirit, it seems. <laughs> Um, because the spirit is not just in the 17th century. But there's an organization to hymn books. Uh, but when we think about the Psalms, we just think of it as a collection of prayers um, from the Hebrew people, from the Israelites. You might think of David or Solomon or Moses or some people that you don't really know, Korah and Asaph. Um, and you read them and you personalize them. I'm not going to be having a necessarily devotional look at a particular psalm. I want to look at the breadth of the psalms. I want to look at the overall trajectory of the psalms. Um, hopefully my blurb was clear enough that I was going to do that. Okay. But I want to start in a particular psalm, and I'm going to read a particular psalm, and it's Psalm 72. Um, and I'm going to read from the NIV. I don't usually read from the NIV, so I picked up an NIV uh, Someone gave us these, and this NIV has never been opened, and so it might take me a while sometimes to separate the pages. But I've written most of the passages on my PowerPoint. But this is called Psalm 72, and it says, of Solomon. I'll explain that um, superscription in a little bit, <clears throat> but let me read it. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. May he be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. May he rule from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him with gifts. May all kings bow down to him, and all nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given to him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. 
May grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him. They will call him blessed. Praise be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Uh, so this is Psalm 72, a Psalm of Solomon. <clears throat> and it's really, really beautiful. It gives this huge view of what the king will do. But you'll see that I highlighted this part right here. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, verses 18 through 20. And so this is this doxology, this praise um, for <clears throat> the Messiah, the, the royal king. But then you have this very curious verse. I don't know if you've ever stumbled over this. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. Doesn't seem like much, but it's weird because it's not the end of David's prayers. He writes Psalm 86, 101, 103, 110. Uh, in fact, 108 through 110, 138 through 145. <clears throat> so why would it be the end of David's prayers? It makes no sense. But we're going to return to this in a moment. I want us to look at Psalm 72, and then we'll look at that doxology before we get into the larger trajectory of the Psalms. So this is really a crescendo. This is a movement that the Psalter has been moving toward. By the, time, by the way, sometimes I use the word Psalter. It's a British way of expressing it. Sometimes I say Psalms. Psalter just means kind of a collection, okay, of the books of Psalms. Or books of Psalms. So it's really this movement, this crescendo of moving from 1 to 72, because it's really moving toward praising the king. The king who comes is enthroned, and justice and righteousness will cover the earth, that nations will bow down, that the enemies will be vanquished, um, and that this throne will last forever. And so it's really, really high praise. <clears throat> and so it's really a vision of what God's promised king, David's son, would be and would do. Uh, and it seems that this is a fulfillment of God's promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So that's a big promise from God to King David. And so David's like, well, there's going to be someone from my body who's going to be established as a king and reign forever. Well, this is, in fact, what happens in this psalm. It's about Solomon. And so Solomon, so before David dies, he names Solomon as his successor through the nudging of Bathsheba, puts him, and it seems very likely that David would have written this psalm. Now, there's this unusual superscription called of Solomon, <clears throat> and you would assume that it's by Solomon. But of actually is an English word that captures the Hebrew really well. It can mean in the style of David. It can mean about David. Or it can mean by David, or by Solomon, about Solomon, or in the style of Solomon. But Solomon doesn't have many psalms. David has lots of psalms. He seems to have his own style, and people wanted to imitate it. 
So it couldn't say of David and not actually be written by David. I don't know if you know that. And it, or it could just be about David. Someone wrote a psalm about their reflections of him being in the caves, something like this. So this is pro most likely to be done by David about Solomon because Solomon's being enthroned. And it's, I presume it's for Solomon's coronation. So David's very likely to write a psalm. He likes writing psalms. And so he writes a psalm um, to be read at the coronation of Solomon as a, as a, as a piece. <clears throat> and so there's praise that God has done what he said. He's established someone from David's own body on the throne that he's going to build this temple and establish his line forever, this kingdom forever. Um, but that's not exactly, it doesn't go very well because Solomon doesn't do as he should do. He does build the temple and there's a glorious event around that and lots of prayers, but then he starts marrying lots of pagan wives and foreign wives and starts worshiping pagan gods. And before you know it, the kingdom splits between North and South Israel and Judah, and then they end up going into exile. So um, you think, well, why, why does there need to be more Psalms? Because it says, and so at the crescendo of Psalm 72, the ends of the Psalm. So what do we do with this doxology? What do we think about it? Was this da um, David's last written Psalm, his, the last gasp of breath in his, in his lungs as he writes this out? No, it's not very likely because there's a doxology before it. And the editorial hand in the Psalms, uh, the people who organized them had pretty heavy hands and they felt even the subscriptions that we have, like this is about David with Bathsheba or David in the caves, these were actually incorporated into the text much later. They weren't a part of the original Psalms. And some Psalms that we have, Psalm 42 and 43, is actually one Psalm, but we've divided it. These types of things. And so... What it seems like is that this was the original ending of the Psalms, this kind of build up Solomon. Okay, this is a completion, but it hasn't gone the way. And so often what happens is that they felt like they had to regroup and reassess their understanding of God and God's promises and, and add other prayers and other Psalms and even other Psalms of David to tell a larger story. I'll talk about that in just a moment, but it seems like this is not, this was the original ending, but it has now been expanded uh, because the editorial process is evident. Now, we, it, it might be a little bit surprising because books in the Bible often have editing that has happened to them, um, even what we would consider original texts, and that we see that God has been at work through the editing process. That might be a bit shocking. But we see it very clearly in the Psalms because you have them as early as Moses and as late as the Babylon exile. They're written by David and Asaph and Solomon, and all these people, and they incorporate them. They edit, to, edit them into a organized whole to tell a particular type of story. <laughs> and so you see other kind of editorial process, like in the New Testament, the ending of Mark. You know, the picking up of snakes and these types of things. You're like, why is that? And sometimes in your Bibles, it's italicized, saying this is not a part of the earliest manuscripts, but a part of many well-attested manuscripts. 
You also have this story um, of the woman caught in adultery in John um, chapter eight. You're like, well, it's not a part of the best attested manuscripts. Why is it in there? And presumably it's an oral tradition that people link to authentic sayings and authentic events. And they're like, well, this is such a good one. We got to put it in there somewhere. And it fits pretty nice here. But if you take it out of John, you actually see that it flows more easily. But you think, well, this sounds like a legitimate story. And that's what they thought early on, you know, way, 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 way back when. And so you do see editorial processes happening in the text. It might give you some trouble, but hopefully um, after this, you'll see, I'm going to try to show how God oversees not just the writing of the text, but even the editorial process of the text. And so I believe that the final form of the Psalms, as we have received it, these five books, is probably in the Babylonian exile or maybe um, during the second temple or maybe even earlier than that, because you have at least Psalm 137 is about the Babylonian exile by Babylon or by the rivers of Babylon we wept. So it has to be as late as that, the final form. Uh, and, and other reasons why, and I'll explain that in a minute. So you have this moment in Psalm 72 where there's proper praise and they kept the Psalm at Psalm 72 and they kept it near the middle or the early part of the Psalms. Why would they keep this crescendo early on in the Psalms? There's this doxology. It's a doxology praising God for fulfilling his promises, but it's not just a doxology praising uh, what God has done with, by putting so- Solomon on the throne, but actually is a praise for the um, for the king in general through book two. And I'll get to that in a minute. But what I believe it is, it's if you're if you go to a wedding, let's say you go to a wedding, you see someone getting married and they look so beautiful and they're asking if they look beautiful enough and and are all the friends and family getting along. <laughs> but there's people who are sitting there long in the tooth in their own marriages and they see these young couples looking starry eyed at one another and saying trying to remember their I do's. And people are like, I'm so excited for them. But are they really ready? Are they really ready? And sometimes you see that for young Christians. They place their faith in Jesus, and you're like, that's so awesome. Are they really ready for the long journey ahead of them? Are they going to be able to sustain all the ups and downs? And so I think that that's why maybe the editors kept it, because what happens right after Psalm 72, Psalm 73, it is, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? We'll get to that. And so when a crisis happens in our life or in our faith or even our marriages, it causes us to reassess. And for some people, it's just too much and they walk away from faith. Liz spoke recently on faith deconstruction, uh, where people slowly chip, chip, chip away at the foundations of their faith and they give up and walk away. Other people come to Labrie. And they say, uh, <laughs> we have three programs for you. Uh, no, some people come to Labrie and they want to ask her questions. And we've had people actually come and they said, I said, why have you come to Labrie? They said, because I want to mark a closure on my Christian faith. So I've seen some people actually try to close out their faith um, or their last gasp. And, the, and it's not enough. 
So I've seen that, but there's other people are like, I need to reassess. And it starts giving them hope. I need to reassess. I need to have a larger framework. My, maybe my framework for how God works and how I relate to God has not been big enough. I need a larger framework. And that's exactly what I think the Israelites did. They had all their hopes in the Israelite king, this king that would be established. Mm -hmm. And when Solomon didn't work out, they're in exile, they're in Babylon, um, and they're southern, uh, and Israel is in uh, Assyria. They're just like, what? How do we rethink about this? How, how do we reassess and have a larger framework? And I believe that the Psalter is a demonstration of how they rearrange the framework on understanding the larger picture of who God is mm -hmm. and what his Messiah precisely does and who we are in the midst of that story. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through there, uh, the five books of the Psalms. There's five books. Did you know that there were five books? Some people forget and they don't see book one, book two or book three. And they're like, yeah, that's unnecessary. Uh, but it's actually very necessary to understand. And so each book has a theme. Now, let's start with book one. And by starting with book one, let's start with Psalm one. The very first verse in Psalm 1 is, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting, especially if it's been organized in the midst of where they have no temple. The focus is on Torah, not on the sacrifices, going to the sacrifices and things as much. Language of sacrifice shows up, but... Uh, Torah studies, like a lot of people would just go and do the rituals, but then it started becoming a lot about Torah studies, people of the book. And so uh, you see that there's a real emphasis on Torah and on the covenant. How might we re-understand the covenant? How might we be faithful? Perhaps we're in exile because we've been unfaithful. We need to really dedicate our hearts to Torah. Now, Torah is the first five books of the Bible. It's another way of saying um, the law of the Lord. And in fact, there's some ways of thinking about Torah that are actually uh, more expansive. It can mean the whole Old Testament and can also even mean uh, God's uh, design and creation even. Um, you know, the, the heavens declare the, the glory of God. Uh, and, and what you'll see is in book one that the theme of Torah actually shows up throughout. So in the middle of book one, smack dab in the middle of Psalm 19, structurally, and Psalm 19 is the one that the heavens declare the glory of God. But then it says that the Torah is like the light. It's like the sunshine. You know, you, you, you have this glorious bridegroom coming and you have this wedding or this presentation of this king. And then it has Torah, a reflection on Torah. And it seems like a weird break for us when we're reading it. <clears throat> but it's not a weird break in terms of looking at the Psalms in book one, <clears throat> because book 19 sits right smack in the devil. Um, Dab in the middle, whatever. Smack in the middle. Get out. Um, so you also have this theme of Torah happening actually throughout all of the Psalter. Psalter. Uh, and so you have five books of Psalms, and it matches the five books of Torah. Uh, and that's why there are five books. Um, and 
at book five at a critical turning point is Psalm 119. That's the one that's and it's called an acrostic psalm where they, you know, A is for apples, B is for beetles, you know, or broccoli or whatever. <laughs> I'm really bad at those things, but it's an acrostic and you, but it would be like the Hebrew alphabet. And then they would use that letter to start a poem about a reflection on Torah. And it's very long, but right in the middle of book five, or a critical point in book five is this long reflection on Torah. It's not randomly there. And so what you have is it, it's really like pillars under a house, like these two pillars. Um, you have two pillars holding up a structure and the pillars are Torah holding up the structure of the Psalter of the Psalms. It's just a, a metaphor for you to think about it. And so that's how critical Torah is to the Psalms. Uh, it's wants you to devote and dedicate yourself to understanding the scriptures, God's law, God's commands, God's words. Um, and so really the theme of, the, of book one is covenantal faithfulness. We must be faithful to the covenant. So there's, there's ones on, I need to be pure. I don't want to, I want to be blameless. My lips need to be clean. I want to come to your presence. Um, <clears throat> and so Psalm, uh, Psalm one really reflects book one and book one is about covenantal faithfulness, dedication to Torah. And that begins the whole theme of the whole Psalter. Book two uh, starts with Psalm 42, but really Psalm two is an introduction to book two. And in Psalm two, uh, you have the promise of God's established king. So you have in verses one, four, six, and seven, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. Now, I don't know if you remember when I read 2 Samuel 7, says, I will make you my son and I will be your father. God is saying that to the king. Well, this takes on a whole new nuance later. But we'll talk about that. But you see in book two or Psalm two, a reflection on the king. And these are called royal psalms. Uh, so Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. So psalm, uh, wisdom psalms usually reflect on creation and kind of proverbial stuff, where royal psalms really reflect on the king, on the Messiah. So Psalm 72 would be a messianic psalm, but it would be considered among scholars a royal psalm. Uh, there would have been royal psalms maybe to other kinds of kings in other countries, other kingdoms, other religions, but uh, these are especially about Israel's king and God's faithfulness to establish that king. But that king has to be established by covenantal faithfulness. And so where does book two end? Psalm 72, where we started tonight. This high crescendo um, of the royals um, of book two. And yet it's no longer the end of Psalms. Because Solomon was not all that he has, should have been. He was no different than you or I. We have fallen short of the glory of God. Solomon fell far short. So they add book three. Book three starts with Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? This is a moment where they're saying, I have doubts. God, in your creation and in your promises, in your covenant, 
Why are we not experiencing the blessings? How can the blessings come to David's son if his son has failed and we're exiled? We're out of the land. We have our king is um, is dejected. What gives? What hope can we have for your promises? And so the theme throughout book three is lament. Um, and you see a high amount of lament psalms. In fact, you see a high amount of lament psalms throughout book one, two, and three. And lament psalms are just, just like this, like, why are you asleep, Lord? These types of things. Calling out to question God. And, and I've encouraged people who've come to Labrie. I used to encourage them to yell at God, and now I don't do that anymore. You can still get loud, but but people have taken it in different ways. What I mean is you can be brutally honest with God. You can be angry with God. But lament is not cynicism. Uh, like you think of uh, Neil Young says, uh, I don't believe you, Jesus, because you don't save right away. That's cynicism. Tori Amos says, God, sometimes you need a woman to look after you. That's cynicism. Um, and or Hosier, take me to church. That's a song of cynicism. These are not cynicism. They're trusting that the Lord can act. God is not dethroned. So why are we suffering? God, you are not dethroned. Why do the wicked prosper? Where's your justice? Where's your righteousness? And so book three ends with Psalm 88 and Psalm 89. Now, a lot of I show both of these because Psalm 88, most people think it's the darkest psalm. It is not. But Psalm 88 ends famously, you have taken from me neighbor and friend, darkness is my closest friend. And that is a comforting psalm when you are in the darkness. But I would say Psalm 89 is darker. It says in verse 39 of uh, Psalm 89, you have defiled his crown in the dust. God, we see our Israel king. We see the line of David in the, and his crown is in the dirt. They've taken it and they've put it into Nebuchadnezzar's temple. Mm -hmm. Your enemies, Lord, have mocked every step of your anointed one. In verse 51, they're angry. And verse 51 is where it ends. It's angry at God. God, where are your promises for me and for the nation and for your glory? Your glory has fallen short, not just because of us. But because we're just not seeing it, why you knew you knew who you chose in the first place. We need to see your glory. Mm -hmm. And so we lament. We trust you because you're on the throne, but we don't understand you. And that turns, what's Psalm 90? Any guesses? Which starts book four? Any Bible geeks? No. Close, Tanner. I like the I like the zeal though. Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is Moses. It's the Psalm of Moses. And how does he start? And it's actually uh, Psalm 90, 91, and 92, maybe, uh, are songs of Moses, Psalms of Moses, that are outside of the one that you find in, Genesis, uh, in Exodus. He begins his psalm, and book four begins its uh, theme as, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The theme of book four is wilderness. It's exile. The exodus sets the framework of people. So you have this, you have the promises of God, you have the promises of the king, 
but then it doesn't work out and I'm dejected. And when, when crises hit us, tragedies or laments hit us, we go, we are first in this acute kind of sensation of like, I need something to change. It's really dark. But then it sends you into a wilderness, can send you into a blandness, a disorientation. And you don't know, where am I going? What is this journey about ultimately? And so these uh, editors brought book four to really reflect on this wilderness. And you have theme of creation and wilderness. God, you are everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 104 is this great creation psalm, watching the waters feed the, the animals and humans just being a small part of that greater, um, that greater created order. Um, and you have um, these reflections, a lot of historical psalms fall in book four. Now, these historical psalms, um, uh, uh, example like 105 and 106, uh, which is actually the end of, um, of this Exodus. And so Psalm 90 is a reflection on Exodus. Psalm 105 and 106 are also these reflections. Let me give you an example so you can understand what that I mean by these historical psalms. But it's talking about how Israel was following God in the wilderness and kept falling and falling and falling. Um, uh, and it says, you know, uh, remember the wonders of the Lord. We were in the wilderness and we kept forgetting. We kept turning to idols and God disciplined us, but then he would bring us back. And so what you have, so I'm not going to read. So what you have here is really them saying, we've been here before. We've always been here. We've been in the wilderness before because we didn't know how to focus on God. And God has been leading us, whether we had a king or a judge or Moses or even Abraham, God fall, um, led him. God, uh, God led us by the pillar of fire, smoke in the day, fire by night. And we followed. God has always been with us, even in the wilderness, even without a temple, even without a king. God has always led us. And so we can trust that God does not just uh, get us one place and then leave us, but he's always um, leading us. Um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, this, this um, lament or these crises can give us this existential homelessness. A lot of people express um, there's a homelessness, not just of, of financial homelessness, but there's a lot of people homeless that comes through Labrie and saying, I don't know where I'm from. I don't know. I can't connect to where I'm from. I don't know where I'm going and I don't know who I am. And they're often post something, post job, post university, post career, post marriage, post dating relationship, post death of a loved one. And they can no longer handle the status quo. And they're saying, how can I follow God in the wilderness? And that is what book four really focuses on. God is with you, whether he's established you in a place or whether you're in the wilderness, God is with you. And that leads us to book five, the return of the king. Thank you. I knew if y'all were getting sleepy by this moment, you just throw a little Lord of the Rings in and I hook you back in. Uh, Psalm 107, Psalm 107, after this wilderness and saying, God did this and God did this, and we we're in the wilderness, Psalm 107, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. 
his love endures forever. Now, what's amazing, I actually will read just one section of Psalm 107 because it continues this kind of process of saying, yeah, we've been in the wilderness, but God keeps bringing us back. We we get off track, he brings us back. We get off path, he brings us back. Uh, Here's one. um, Some sat in darkness and the deepest gloom, prisoners suffering in iron chains, for they had rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled and there was no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the deepest gloom and broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love, for his wonderful deeds for men, for he breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. So Psalm 107 is really saying, He's bringing us back. He's going to bring us back. People have been lost before. This is this is a part of being uh, the Christian life, or this is a part of being God's people. We fall away. He brings us back. He disciplined us, but now he's bringing us back. This exile won't last forever. He will bring us back. And so book five is really a theme of praise. Lots and lots and lots of praise. Lament is still present. By the waters of Babylon we wept is still there. But it starts lessening in in the midst of the din of praise. It's just praise, 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 praise throughout book five. It's a praise for the return of God's people to Jerusalem and the establishment of God's king. And so you have Psalm 113 through 118 are called the Halal Psalms. Halal just means praise God. Praise God for this. Praise God for that. Praise God for this. And they were sung, all of them, at Passover. Um, some even wonder if Jesus and his um, uh, the disciples that said that they sang and probably would have sung these psalms at their Passover, at the Last Supper. And then those Hallel psalms, and they become important in a minute, uh, and it's really this praise of God restoring the people and also bringing his king in amongst his people. Um, but then Psalm 119, and that's that acrostic on Torah, you know, the alphabetic alphabet psalm on Torah, sits right in the middle. It's this long reflection right after these praise songs, and then it opens up to the songs of ascent. Now, ascent doesn't mean that we are going up to heaven. I really like the New Living Translation. It says, pilgrims ascending on their way to Jerusalem. That's the concept. They're returning home. They're returning to the promised land. Uh, In fact, this is the fifth book, just like Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy was positioning them to inherit the promised land. And so this is this anticipation, anticipation that God is going to bring us into the promised land forever and ever. Um, And in fact, it's a popular belief that these uh, 15 Psalms, I believe, these 15 Psalms would have matched the 15 steps of the temple. And on the first step, they would have recited Psalm 120. And then on the second step, They would have recited the Psalm 121, 122 on the next step, and so on, until at the very top, they recite Psalm 134, and then they're in the presence of God. Uh, In Psalm 136, his love endures forever. He created the moon and the stars. His love endures forever. Uh, Og and Bashag or whatever, you know, his love endures forever. That was always a weird one. But it's this repetition, this refrain of his love endures forever, which really picks up Psalm 107, his love endures forever. 
Um, and then uh, and then at the very final end, you have many psalms of praise. So in the end, all of Israel and all of creation will praise the Lord. All wickedness will be um, removed and um, people will be restored to the land. In fact, all of creation will praise him, the moon, the stars, the sun, uh, and the plants, the trees, the animals, all will praise him. So it's this wonderful end to book five. And so you have this whole trajectory of the Psalms. Now, uh, there's a guy named G.H. Wilson who came up with this idea of what he called the seams of the Psalms. Uh, now, if you go and look at the Psalms after tonight, you will see all that I'm talking to you about. But if you're really trying to do fine comb, it will be sometimes difficult to be like, how does this fit here and that fit there? It's still a working progress of people trying to understand the whole framework of the Psalms. But uh, Wilson was really one of the key people that really started getting people to cue in, clue in on this. And his, uh, and he called it the seams. And what he said is that at the end of each book, we have a doxology. We have a praise. And so book one ends Psalm 41, verse 13, blessed be the Lord from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 72, I read earlier. <clears throat> uh, let's see here. At the end of Psalm 72, praise be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. It's, it's actually a really high praise after the second book. But then interestingly, Psalm 89, you remember I said that this is the most dejected psalm. But most people don't realize that it is the saddest psalm. Because it's actually mirroring Psalm 72, the praise of the king. Psalm 89, the king is in the dirt. It's a direct lament of Psalm 72. But most people think, well, it doesn't really end sad because it has praise be the Lord forever. But what you see is that in, uh, um, in book one, well, I'll get to that in just a minute. And then 106, you have. Um, a variation of this, blessed be the Lord, uh, I hear. I hope. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, amen. What you have at the, each end, the end of each theme is praising God for this. So God, for your covenant, <laughs> blessed be you. Praise you. For your king, your promised king, praise you. In times of lament, praise you. And that's why it's interesting. The doxology is only one little line. Praise be the Lord forever. It's not this a long, a long praise. It's not that you have to go to a long worship service when you feel terrible. It's just like, I trust you. Praise you. And then book four, okay, we're back on the road. Praise you. Bless you. Um, and then book five does not end with a doxology uh, or a refrain. It ends with five psalms of doxology. It's amazing. And so what you have, and these are the psalms that says, moon and stars praise him, sun praise him, planets praise him, uh, nations praise him, so on and so on. Uh, and so it really, these last five psalms 
are doxologies to the whole Psalter. And so you have five Psalms reflecting the five books of the Psalter to praise him and what Brueggemann calls in abandoned praise. There's no more time to petition. There's no more time. It's just like you just want to raise your hands and praise God for all that he's accomplished, the miracle of redeeming all of creation. And so it's a portrait of renewed creation and a redeemed people praising him for all that he's done. Okay, so I've just dealt with the structure. Okay, I've given you a sense of the five books, what each theme has, and that they're all held by these praises. And that in each step of the journey, we can trust God and praise him for what he does and is doing and will do. But now I want to have three concluding reflections <clears throat> on God's tapestry, on God's fulfillment, and on God's sovereign care. We're going to go through those three concluding reflections, and then we'll have a discussion. Okay, God's tapestry. <clears throat> Let me see here. Oh, by the way, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. So the first thing I want to say is that the Psalms are unbelievable. They're, they're amazing. So what's happened is that you had all these disparate prayers of God's people over time. As early as Moses and as late as Babylon, different people, different situations, joy, crisis, petition, thanksgiving. There are all these different areas in different circumstances, and they, and they pray to God. And if you're a person who prays, we all pray in our own little way, maybe in our closet, in our bedroom, or driving through McDonald's, <laughs> praying. And it's hard to believe that it's not just hitting the ceiling. It's hard to believe that it goes anywhere, that God can lean in and listen. But um, the Psalms, what has happened is that all these disparate prayers has been organized into this beautiful mosaic, this beautiful tapestry. Um, Ida Schaefer, who helped founded, who helped found Labrie, um, said that um, our lives before God is like a tapestry. And when you're doing a tapestry, what you see on the backside is a whole bunch of loose threads, as you see here in this picture. And that's our view of our lives. We just see the loose threads. We don't see where they attach or where they go. We only have a semblance. But on the other side, God has woven our prayers, our lives together into a history and has woven them into this beautiful story, this beautiful tapestry. And so these editors had such sensibility, such inspiration by God, that they were able to weave all these different psalms into a beautiful story about what God has done and is doing and will do. It's amazing. And so that's why you can see our words of, for God has actually become God's word to us, that God has overseen the editorial process so that we might benefit from the prayers that you and I have had, someone coming in and collecting them and saying, God has done this with you. It's really beautiful. <clears throat> <clears throat> uh, 
but it gets more amazing. Um, <clears throat> what's astonishing is that, uh, where am I here? Is that these Psalms, the, this collection, the Psalter, was put into the writings of the Old Testament. And Israel would go to these Psalms and read them and read them and think about them and try to understand what was God saying to them through the prayers that they had. And so uh, they were a part of our prayers, became a part of Scripture, became God's Word. But this Word was seen as prophetic. That our words praying to God actually becomes prophecy of what God is going to do and fulfill. Mm -hmm. Our longings are fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. We're longing for the Messiah. And then Jesus comes. But what's amazing about this uh, is that Jesus, what he most, uh, most often does and the apostles do, he, when he's asked, who are you? Who do you think you are? Where does he turn? He turns to the prayers of God's people and it says, that's me. And so in Psalm uh, Matthew 21, verses 9 through 10 and verse 16, you see these allusions, these reflections or these quotations. Now, allusions is kind of like when the psalm or when a uh, an Old Testament text is embedded into a New Testament story. Quotations is when it's explicit. So you see that and you'll see that here. So you see um, explicitly Psalm 118 being quoted in Psalm 8. So in Matthew 21, it says, The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. In this little story, there's two psalms being reflected and quoted. One out of the mouths of the children, and then one Jesus is instructing the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, the reason that these children were singing this, this, this song to Jesus is because in Psalm 118, it says that they would bring out their branches and sing, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, because they see he as the fulfillment of the Psalms. So the kids sing it every year and they're like, oh, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. They bring out the palm branches and they start singing Psalm, the Hallel Psalms. Um, because they're like, he's the Messiah and the Pharisees are indignant. You're saying you're the fulfillment? of the prayers of God's people and of God's word. And he goes, haven't you ever read uh, from the lips of children and infants, you Lord have called forth your praise. This is from Psalm eight. And so Jesus is constantly reflecting on the Psalms to speak about who he is and people identifying him that. Or you also see it in, you also see it in Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. In some, um, reflecting Psalm 110, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David speaking by the spirit calls him Lord? 
For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Jesus is able to identify Psalm 110 and say, that's me. He's taking up the prayers of God's people and identifying himself. That what these people prayed became prophetic. And Jesus took it on for himself. You also see more explicitly uh, uh, Jesus um, in Luke 24. Verse 44, these are the disciples on the way uh, to Emmaus. And Jesus said to these disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. It's interesting to think of God's people having a fulfillment um, and that Jesus is going to point to them. Uh, and if you see... Um, these, this picture here, this is uh, what they do nowadays. So I thought that was pretty cool of me to put it in. But <laughs> this looks like a lot of Zoom photos. Um, it looks like people on Zoom. But these people are all speaking. But you see Jesus. And that's what the Psalms are. They're all these different prayers. These different prayers calling for God, longing for God. And when we look at the whole trajectory, we don't just see a story. We see the face of Jesus. And so God has taken up our prayers and shown us himself. You can see this divine orchestration of what God has done uh, to us, through us, and for us. And not only that, um, you know, um, one person wrote about being able to see, um, his name was Morales, saying that we can actually see the in internal life of Jesus through the Psalms because he's taking on these Psalms for himself to express his own plight. And so most famously in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, he quotes Psalm 22. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and in fact, there's lots of psalms and lament psalms being used to describe Jesus or, or Jesus himself takes on lament psalms to express his suffering, his pain, his questioning. And yet Psalm 22 also expresses this confidence. And he heard my cry. That's one thing that Brett and I have talked about. One song that we both do not like. Uh, it says the father turns his face away, right? But um, that is supposed to be talking about his wrath. That's fair. But in Psalm 22, it says, but he turned his ear to me. And so um, so they were. he was bearing the wrath, but also the father leaned in um, because he is not far from his faithful ones. And so... What the Psalms do is that not only do they point to Jesus, they show that they fulfill our longings are fulfilled in Jesus, and that Jesus shows us that he um, shares every weakness that we have had, that he is with us. He's taken our prayers onto his own lips 
to communicate to us himself. <clears throat> uh, and just quickly, even the apostles identified Jesus. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 35 is quoting Psalm 78, verse 2. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. That's David, by the way. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Or uh, I won't uh, go too far. Or Hebrews 2 is reflecting on Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In put it, putting everything under them, that's humanity, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so the apostles would look to the Psalms and start trying to re-understand what is this, his, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. How might we understand it in the Psalms, give them a way of thinking about it? Often when we think of Psalms, we're just looking for our favorites in our times of distress. But, but the New Testament um, and the, actually all the biblical authors and in the first century Jewish people would have looked at the Psalms as telling us corporate whole. Uh, I have a list. There's uh, by a guy named Daniel Berkovich. I think that's how you say his name. Um, I can even send you a larger, uh, a larger article, but or make a copy for you. But these are all the times that the Psalms are mentioned in the Gospels, uh, and and where where Jesus uses them on his lips, or the um, writers reflect on Jesus. Um, and, uh, he didn't, he didn't do the new Testament letters or any of that, um, or even in acts, but he does have the gospels. If you want a copy of this, just ask me, and I can give you a copy. Was well, it's, it's a fascinating thing. <clears throat> okay. So I, I was reflecting on how the Psalms is a tapestry of how God is orchestrated. And then also how he has fulfilled it through our prayers in the face of Jesus. And the last one reflection is I want to talk about God's sovereign care. Um, <clears throat> sovereign just means his authority, his power, that there is nothing that um, can stop God from doing what he wills. And I want to say that the editorial process shows us that God has great care for us. Not only did he show sovereignty over the editorial process in creating this trajectory, but he was over the people who wrote, worked through them that were words of their own in their own crisis, in their own circumstances, to speak a truth of a reality beyond their imagination that would be fulfilled in Jesus. He was able to communicate and speak his promises and speak toward his fulfillment through the prayers of these people who were not as aware of that necessarily. And this should give us great confidence that in spite of appearances, God is in control. That there, as Francis Schaeffer would put it, there's no little people, no little places. Because some of these stories, darkness is my only friend. The crown is in the dust. 
that no matter where we are, we're not too minuscule for God to notice us and to even work his purposes through us and for his people and for his purposes and glory. And so we can give thanks to God in all things, just as we see in the Psalms. There's a doxology at the end of each book for his law, for his king, in the midst of lament, in the midst of the wilderness, and for the return and for his fulfillment. Now, it doesn't mean that we need to have a fake plastic smile and go into church and pretend that we're happy because God's got it in control. But no, it's, it's not giving thanks for hardship. It's not giving thanks for the hard things or the sorrow or the tragedies. It's saying, I trust you that you are enthroned and that you will bring about your good purposes in some way, even if it's in the next life. And so that's why Paul was a very good reader of the Psalms. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And then um, that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. And then in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 and 6, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. What's really beautiful about this passage, Paul knows you're anxious. Paul knows that there's lots of situations and that you need prayer and petition and requests, but it needs to be framed by Thanksgiving. Um, So one thing that we try to do on Monday mornings is we always try to give our Thanksgivings and our petitions, but we always want to give our Thanksgivings first because it reminds us that God has been faithful and that gives us confidence to pray and request that he will be faithful. And so this is what Paul is doing. Paul is not an idealist. He's not naive. He fully knows. Um, In fact, he's in prison when he's writing these words. But he knows that the whole story will be complete because Jesus has come and Jesus will come. Okay, so that's where I end. Uh, Now we have time for discussion. So the word of when it's talking about who wrote the psalm. Is it always, as you described, that it could it could be written by David, Solomon, or Moses, or whoever? It could be about him, or it could be in the style of for all of them. Yes, that Hebrew word. Right. Um, yeah, it just has that connotation. Like, so if we say the Psalm of David, mm-hmm. it almost carries that connotation. Is it about David? Hmm. Is it by David? Um, and so that Hebrew word carries those connotations. Because um, a lot of times when people teach on them, they, they make a direct connection to that person's life. But right. that may not be the case. It may not be the case, but it's not a problem. But um, Because uh, there are certain Psalms that are uh, ascribed to David. Mm-hmm. And it could be in the style of David because David wrote it. Or if it's about David and us thinking that he wrote it, it, it can help us with a type of reflection. So it doesn't detract from our ability to interpret, but it it does give us an indication that it's not always the case that David wrote it. Because in some situations, it is like if you've read and you're like, oh, this is kind of odd that, you know, but it kind of fits, you know, and it can even actually mean like 
you know, according to his life, you know, this, this Psalm seems to fit this situation in his life and we're going to apply it. So, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I guess when I've heard this talked about before, one idea of how the Psalms are divided is like Psalms of orientation, disorientation, mm -hmm. reorientation. Like, is it that there's just a bunch of different ways people are trying to divide up the Psalms and make sense of them? Or is there some overlap with that? And like, I guess how common is this idea among people who study the Psalms that like, these are the five books where there are lots of different ways of kind of splitting them up? Among scholarship, this is the view. This isn't an outlier. It's just most churches don't know about it and pastors don't necessarily study it. Um, so I'm just a really, um, I just really love the Psalms and I've read lots of texts on them, but I would say this is the view of the Psalms, uh, especially with Wilson's um, idea of the seams. It just becomes just too clear. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. But, uh, and Brueggemann is the, is the one who talks about orientation, disorientation, reorientation. And so what that is, is he's talking specifically about Thanksgiving Psalms. Uh, and so what happens is that, and it's his way of trying to describe this, that is not an ancient way of looking at the Psalms, but it's a helpful pastoral way of looking at the Psalms. And I think Brueggemann's right on. There's many things I don't like about Brueggemann in certain areas, but I think the Psalms he's got. And in Thanksgiving Psalms, it's like um, the assumption is, and also kind of the, uh, the worldview behind the Psalms is this orientation disorientation, reorientation, because what it is, is orientation is what Brueggemann would call the status quo. And I refer to that. And so everything is going great. And God promised that if you're righteous um, and you're diligent, success will come. If you lie, you deceive, um, you philander, things are going to go badly. That's kind of like Proverbs. And that is behind um, the Torah, like not only cursing and blessing for the commands, but this is inscribed in the very nature of reality. That if you um, are obedient to the creator in faithfulness and righteousness, then you'll be blessed. If not, you will suffer. And that's, so it's kind of this wisdom worldview. That's where Brueggemann starts. That's called orientation. However, things don't always go. Even in Proverbs, it says you, uh, um, a poor man works for a field and a harvest and injustice sweeps it away. And so it's just like orientation, disorientation. I've been faithful, God. I know that I'm, I know that I've sinned, but there's not, there's no reason that the enemy should be shooting their arrows at me. I don't, you know, um, and so there's a disorientation. God, where are you? What's happening? Why is your creation not according to your righteous purposes? However, and so they pray and petition, God, where are you? I know you are God. You are amazing. You have been my help. But these people are after me. I feel like I'm drowning. I'm overwhelmed. But then they hear God's prayer. In the sanctuary, I understood. Or, um, and you heard my cry. That's reorientation. But reorientation is not returning to status quo. And so Brueggemann is very clear to say this is not orientation, disorientation, orientation. 
but that when you go back into reorientation, you see the world in a larger way. Uh, and so you've moved through the valleys and now you understand God better. You understand the world better. Um, and so uh, he's really talking about Thanksgiving songs. You're great. Something's wrong. Help me. You have helped me. Um, and that's just a good way of thinking about life, the prayerful life, like a psalm like life before um, God. But he's not talking about the overarching trajectory of the psalms. Is that helpful? Yeah. Thank you. Okay. You wanted to say anything more? No. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, yes. Sir, thank you for orienting us to the songs like like this. That was uh, beautiful. I think it just helps me to really see it uh, differently. Like I look at, I appreciate mm. that. And I just wanted to ask, what is your wisdom in and now how we go and read the songs? Should we be reading them in books, or, or do you have any recommendation? Well, first of all, this does not take away from reading them as you've been reading them. It only adds a layer. Sure. And it helps me see how Israel, uh, the Psalms were so in, into all of their life. They step on a step, they say a psalm, you know what I mean? So uh, how do they do that? You know. <laughs> well, that's just a theory. Because there's 15 Psalms, there were 15 steps, and it's about this return. So they're like, well... It fits like a glove, yeah. Um, but it's just a theory. There's no proof. Um, but you do have the priest singing psalms and this type of thing. Um, I would say that it's really helpful to try to um, just read read a whole book, or even just reflect on what I've just told you and go back and look at the psalms. Mm -hmm. But like I said, you're going to go and say this doesn't always seem to fit. Because this is um, this is something that we've come to understand about the Psalms, but we don't understand the full structure of it. But you know, literary theory has really helped us understand many things. Because um, you know, 18th century, 19th century, we would just kind of go verse by verse. Ever since Calvin, we would go verse by verse, word by word, word studies. You know, in the, in the Psalms, or we have topical, but. It has been good in the past, you know, 30 years or so where we've we really had this emphasis on literary theory of saying, what's the what's the whole piece? Rather than just reading this one little story, maybe there's a whole flow which this story fits into. And so a good pastor will be like, well, what's happened here? And this is a flow. You know, uh, Jesus is at uh, the dinner with the um, the Pharisees, and then he tells a series of parables, um, you know, let the the least take the, you know, um, don't take the privileged seat. There was a parable of the wedding banquet. And so instead of reading the parable of the wedding banquet and just try to like discern, okay, is this the kingdom of God and who's God and, you know, all this kind of stuff, you're like, oh, he's telling in the context of a wealthy party where the Pharisees are taking these better. So I'm just talking about, there's been a movement toward literary theory of understanding the parts in the midst of the whole. So I would say it's just adding a layer when you're reading a Psalm saying, oh, I am Darkness is my only friend right now, but how beautiful it is to know that it's also said in the context of God's people who have also prayed that prayer. Um, not just sharing that with you, but also it's in the context of God bringing us through it. Um, not diminishing it, not denying it, but giving it its place, but also knowing that it's just one part of a larger trajectory. So um, I would just say it just adds a layer. It doesn't take, it actually deepens our understanding and appreciation of the Psalms. Mm -hmm.
It is, yes. Uh, I was just thinking about an example of this, um, which you know well, um, Psalm 126, uh, and it's actually a pretty short one. Um, but it, can, it's okay if I, yes. it, it's not very long. Um, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Mm -hmm. Psalm 126. Yeah, beautiful psalm. And it's been a meaningful one up the brief for us as we went through a period of looking for a property for two years or and it was a long, mm -hmm. longer before that trying to sell. And, but I think looking at that psalm, I can see these themes and how, how it's saying like, okay, you have done this in the past and yet we're still looking for, like there was orientation, but now we're in this period of disorientation again and like still waiting for something good that will be different, but mm. good still. So yeah. I just think that's like a really beautiful small snapshot that is also like applied, it applies to Israel's story because that's what it's about, but also like we experience that in our own story and as a prayer that like, you know, was meaningful to us in the middle of the story too. And now we can look back and say like, yes, you did restore our fortunes. Yes, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, just kind of taking psalm 126 as a particular and showing it within like a larger framework yeah and also something that was personal for us so you know maybe we've read this personally but then always so we read this corporately as labrie canadian labrie and then but also reading this within the whole corporate whole of god's people within the psalms and yeah um yeah i won't piece it you know i've talked about this song many times uh but yeah it's this in the midst of it's right close after Psalm 119, it's these songs of ascent. And they're stepping up the time, they're they're returning home. They're returning home to Jerusalem. And they're like, you know, there's still lament. We're still disoriented, but it's lessening because we know that you will restore us. Because you have restored us, you will restore us. Mm -hmm. And and that's reflected throughout many Psalms in Book Five. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Well, I like the symbiotic relationship between the Old and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. where, you know, I really want to understand Jesus. I need the Old Testament. But on the other hand, I want to understand the Old Testament. I need to do it through the lens of Jesus. Mm. And uh, you, you see that, like, you got all those times that the Psalms are quoted, you know, in the New Testament, or so much from Isaiah. Jesus, I was quoting Isaiah or Jeremiah. That's right. You know, and, uh, so it's, it's really important. I think one of my favorite verses from the Psalms, Psalm 37, 4, you know, delight in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Mm. And that's so, so reflective of everything that Jesus taught. Yes. Yeah, it's, it is amazing. And that's uh, one of the things I wanted to show is, you know, kind of the um, God really being at work through human authorship whole bunch of human authorship mm -hmm. and edit human editorialness or editor editing um when you get educated you start saying weird words like <laughs> editorialness you think it has to be as long as possible 
Um, Stay away from that educated. <laughs> I know. Totally confused. Educated all good sense out of me. Yeah. But um, yeah, through God's people and through this editing process and that God has really held it. But then um, uh, and how it actually becomes prophetic. And then the scriptures, the gospels themselves, so does it show this validity in their own sense because they bring coherence to this old testament book or books and and show it in new light but in and so the new testament people or the jewish people would be looking at the old testament like oh i never saw that i knew that there was glimmers and um, echoes of things but now i see them in the face of jesus we didn't realize that Mm -hmm. um uh, that jesus needed to die and rise again on the third day but now we can return to the psalms and see it in a whole new light um and so for me it buoys my faith in the scriptures and their authority and god working through them um not overriding personality not overriding circumstances but working through them and bringing his own to completion so god speaks to us through the scriptures yes absolutely yeah And not only he speaks through us, but he actually shows that he fulfills them, which is even a step further. He doesn't just speak morals or metaphors, but he actually becomes the true myth, as Lewis would say. He becomes the actual fulfillment of these promises and of these prayers. So he involves humans in just about everything, even if we're co-creators with God. Well, I I don't like the word co-creator because that is a a, a Catholic term. I I like what Tolkien said is sub-creator. Because we can't create ex nihilo. We can't create no, nothing. I, I know you're not saying that, but I'm yeah. just clarifying. But uh, but yes, I mean, God really honors human- humanity, mm-hmm. our humanness. Um, I mean, he creates the whole world and then places Adam and Eve in responsibility of it. And then when Jesus comes and dies, you know, in Hebrews 2, I mean, uh, Hebrews 2, which I was reflecting on earlier in that Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is really talking about, um, or Hebrews 2 is really talking about the the reclamation or the um, reclaiming humanity for stewardship. We were called to steward in the garden. We failed because of sin. We, we appropriated it toward ourselves. We exploit. We are divided internally and externally from you and me, from God, from our, within ourselves, from nature. And, um, and yet... So we don't see everything subjective. We don't see good dominion. We don't see stewardship, but we do see Jesus and he's accomplished it. And he wants to bring us into that so that we might start being good stewards because we are in his spirit and the spirit is what renews. And as the spirit renews us, he renews us toward orientation toward creation. Um, And so, yes, he does love humans and he loves humanity. It's glorious. And life. And life, and that he would allow us to speak and to write, and that he wants to to communicate to us through people. You know, there's um, Leslie Newbegin was a missiologist. They call he was a philosopher, missionary in India, from Britain. But he had this thing called the Open Secret. It was a book of his, and he said that and this is his theory of why God does not speak from the clouds to everybody, um, which is what would be nice. He says, but God, because God communicates his love through his people, and it can only be through his people that he can communicate who he truly is. If he just speaks from the sky, then that's not true to his character. 
in in the same he, way. He speaks through his spirit. His spirit in his people. Yeah. You know, in the body of believers. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I was wondering if there are other psalms that weren't included in the Bible. So I Googled it and there were 10, apparently there's 10 other psalms. And there's one from the Dead Sea Scrolls. I was wondering if you knew anything about that. I don't know about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I do know that there's other psalms in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, and so the Song of Moses, uh, the Song of Deborah, um, Mary has a, a psalm, Hannah has a psalm. And so there's these other psalms throughout the Bible that are not included. And so the, the Psalms are not a collection of every Psalm written. In fact, you have in some instances in the Old Testament, it says, oh, you can refer to the, the annals of the kings if you want more information on this, but we don't have that text. Um, and in fact, like I said earlier, it seems to me that Psalm 72 is kind of the end of the original ending of the Psalms. But then when, when disorientation happened, when Solomon failed to be a good king, I said that they went around and they reassessed and said, hey, there's these other Psalms. Let's gather it into a whole new picture. Um, and so it's not necessary, or even the sayings of Jesus. John says, you know, we, we, there would be endless amount of books if we included everything about what Jesus said and did. So, yeah, there are plenty of things outside of what we have in a closed, in the final form of a book. But it doesn't call it into disrepute because it doesn't include everything. It, it just includes what it wants to include to say what it needs to say. Do you know how many other there are or could be? I do not. Is, is there like a rough? Like I do not even know a rough. No. Uh, I would say some. It would be important to include the canon, though. Otherwise, we could be doing some sort of cherry picking of the canon. What do you mean? So, like, if the Psalms give a certain narrative and we like that narrative, then we can pick those five books because we've chosen that narrative. But if it's a natural narrative that's come about through the present people, should they not all be canons? No, not necessarily. Yeah, this is a really good question. Why are, why, why are some things not included in the canon? It's a good question. Um, <clears throat> well, it, it could be a very good question about the Psalms particularly, uh, because why don't, why don't we include all the Psalms? Um, are we, are, were they just cherry picking to create a story that they wanted to tell? Fair enough. Uh, how can we know that God orchestrated it? Um, I would say that, uh, why did the Jews see it as prophetic speech and why did they see them as authoritative? Well, I don't know how to answer that question because I don't know. Uh, uh, I believe that it would be similar to how Christians see the Bible in terms of saying, well, the spirit has spoken. So the spirit self-verifies what the spirit has spoken. And so you, you, you see like in the New Testament where it's say, well, the spirit has said, um, or Peter was like, um, these things were written uh, for us. You know, and Paul would say that as well. Um, we didn't, we're not just creating things, but you can still say, mm, I'm not so sure. How do I know? Um, but when you see, but Jesus himself, authenticates the scriptures by seeing them as authoritative. He authenticates themselves by fulfilling them and being the fulfillment of those things. So you can see that it's, you, you might want to say that they're cherry picking. Um, uh, I'm not saying they are, I'm just saying. I know, no, I know. I'm saying one could, yeah. let's not say you, yeah. one could. Um, but, um, 
but I would say that the fulfillment shows that God showed his blessing on it. But the second thing I would say is um, there's nothing wrong with having intentionality. Intentionality is not necessarily cherry picking. So Mark, Matthew, and Luke had intentionality in recounting, and John had their in, intention in how to retell the story for a certain audience for a certain reason. Um, why would any book be authoritative? How, why would any book be divinely inspired? Um, so intentionality doesn't mean that it can't be inspired. But why do we differentiate some as divinely inspired and some are not? And that's where I would say that is the self-authentication of the spirit. Um, and uh, not to go too much further, but like, you know, the early church would have, you know, a variety of different churches in regions all around the world over hundreds of years. And then, um, but there are also Gnostic gospels and stuff um, or Gnostic accounts of Jesus that were a bit later. But, but when all the accounting was said and done, it wasn't just like a group of white men. They, I don't even know if they were technically white, but that's what people <laughs> like to say. But a group of white men in Nicaea basically canonized these certain books. And why do we should we trust these people? Well, because the list of the books that were authoritative in all these communities that didn't know each other all agreed on what the authoritative books were. And so it seems like the spirit was self-authenticating what was authoritative and what was not. And so uh, a person who has the spirit can look at the scriptures and say, this is of the spirit. This is of God. This is not. And, and I would dare anyone read the gospel of Thomas or gospel of Judas. And you just pick it up and you're like, this is very different. Um, it's not arbitrary. I suppose so. on the, from the standpoint of like prophesying Jesus, no rain history seems to have been clogged with these so-called unheard songs that like they brought up to Jesus or brought about Jesus. So no. Yeah, no one ever, no one, no. Um, but if they were found, they'd be like, oh, that's cool. That's awesome. We have an extra piece. Did you want to add to that? Yeah, I just mentioned that one view that I heard was that the reason why the Psalms were seen as prophetic was because, again, the editing process, that by compiling them, by having the three sections of the Torah, the, uh, the history and the Psalms, the, 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 the Torah, the prophets and the Psalms, right. that the Psalms were then seen as prophetic because they were associated with the prophets. That's one argument of it. It is. And uh, and sometimes this, when Jesus says uh, what was fulfilled in Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, the Psalms can be shorthand for the writings, which would include Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and all those. So Psalms is shorthand not just for the Psalter, but for all the books that are narrative-driven. Oh, boy, I... I had a couple of thoughts on, yeah, awesome. um, on that theme there that uh, one is, uh, I think at one point you kind of sort, sort of alluded to, it's kind of risky to think about the humanity involved in, in the mm. ending. And, um, but I, I find that sort of refreshing or healthy that, mm. you know, the, the, the writing, the collection, the editing, the canonization, as well as all the interpretations, you know. In and transmission English, that, and translation, yeah. Yeah. That uh, that it was humans, you know. God didn't hand this thing down. Here's the Bible, um, you know. It it, it was uh, there's a lot of humanity involved. And the yeah. other uh, thought, um, which the first time I heard it, I think it kind of offended me, was someone said, you know, we don't worship the Bible; we worship God. Mm. 
And, and so does the canon give us the full reflection of the God we worship? Hmm. Um, is the question. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, when I think about the Bible, the way I, I've never heard anyone articulate it like this, but this is how I articulate it, that God communicates himself through the scriptures. And what I mean by that is not only he communicates his purposes, his plans, but that he communes with us. He communicates himself. He, he, he gives himself to us through scripture. Because uh, when you're relating to me, you're relating to my voice. So when we're relating to scripture, we're relating to God's voice that is being communicated through his people, but with but with in a special way that a pastor wouldn't have, or even uh, some spiritual writer wouldn't have. Uh, you, you might it might be good ways of pointing you back to the scriptures, but they're not writing revelation. But the Bible is special revelation. And that's even more, it's even more communicative than what nature gives us, what would be considered general revelation. The Bible gives us something special. And what it, what it is, is that um, I think Schaefer said, nature gives us the questions. The Bible gives us the answers. (laughs) Um, uh, you know, these longings of, about what it means to be a human being, what does it mean to be a society, families, truth, justice, and these things. And we find them in scripture, but we see behind them all is the personal God. And, and God is not just giving knowledge just about himself. He's actually giving us knowledge of himself. He's allowing through the scriptures to know him. Um, and so the canon, uh, just as just in the same way that the Psalms, this editorial process, is very similar to how you could think of the canonization, is that, yes, there was a human process in it, but God was orchestrating it in order that a true testimony about himself would be given. And, uh, and so it doesn't mean that we worship the Bible. Uh, in fact, uh, apparently that was also a temptation for the Jewish people when they lost the temple was to worship the Torah, the actual script, uh, more than they should. But um, <laughs> I was so offended when I was I was a young kid in I went to like this reformed church. My father was super permissive. My family was super permissive. And because the the high schools were so crazy, they sent us to a little private Southern Baptist high school. And that was the first time I experienced legalism and moralism. But um, I did see but one professor, uh, his foot was touching the Bible. And he was like a football coach, junior high football coach. This is the South. Um, heavy set kind of guy. His His boot was touching the Bible and someone's like, Coach, every teacher at our Southern Baptist High School was called Coach. And uh, they're like, hey, Coach, your foot is touching the Bible. That's not right. He picked it up and he threw the Bible across the room and it hit the wall. And I was like, you don't see that in public school. And uh, he said, it's not about the Bible. It's about what's in it. He's like, if you're not reading it, don't tell me about me touching it. I was like, whoa. Uh, <laughs> he also carried a bat that was half sun and said those who rebuke discipline anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I never lo- I never forgot that. Like, yeah, we don't worship the Bible. And we can carry the Bible and we can have it gold, you know, leather and golden edge and all these kind of things. But if we're not reading it and not being transformed by what God is saying in it, then 
yeah, we shouldn't worship the Bible, but we should worship the God who has given it to us. And the Bible does lead us to see his face and to see ourselves. Well, like what it says in John 1, you know, the, the word became flesh. It didn't say the word became a book. That's right. Yeah. But that, 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 um, but the, what became flesh was the word. So yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. Well, the word of God from, from right before time, it became, it became flesh. Yeah. And so God has especially communicated himself through text and through flesh. But just to, just to be clear, the incarnation and the scriptures are two different entities. We should not confuse the divine human relationship between the Bible and the divine human relationship in Jesus as something similar. It's not. No, um, it's, it's different, but I do think we have to give right, priority but, to but, Jesus. But we do need to see that God does not dismiss humanity in order to communicate himself, no. that he can actually dwell fully in the human body to communicate himself. Still can. Julie, is it on this? Because Fred has a question. Well, I was going to have a question. Uh, a little different. Uh, not, Great. Uh, I've been going to church for a long time. I've come across many hymn books. They have usually have about 500 hymns in them. Uh, where is the room for these 150 songs? Uh, I think we need to think about that. Yeah, so where do we have room for these 150 psalms to be included yes. in our hymn books that have 500? Yes, well, I'm just the, the church's library of hymns is vast. It is. What's great about hymns and uh, the reason that they were often written was in order to communicate the gospel and doctrine to people who were illiterate or to evangelize through these music. Now, we often think of hymns as kind of dusty old things that older people like or makes us it reminds us of some organs and some kind of mystic mystic past. Um, but they actually were to be used in order to promote the gospel. And so there would be read there would be places for something like the Psalms. In fact, Scottish Presbyterians would only read the Psalms without music because they thought that that was the devil's business. Um, but I know that you're not calling for that, but we do need to expand our imagination rather than just having what do they call it three and eleven or uh, like one verse 11 times, three times something like that. I can't remember the saying. But but our but our songs have become so dimmed down, so dumbed down, and it's a lot about kind of uh, trying to turn love songs into Christian songs, and they just become Jesus as my boyfriend kind of music. <laughs> um, but in the Psalms, actually give us a much richer internal life of the Christian, and so I think you're right. There's a wonderful album by Sandra McCracken, and it's called Psalms. And she sing, She actually takes the lyrics of the Psalms, tweaks them a bit, but sings them. And they're gorgeous. And she wrote them in the midst of going through a divorce, a public divorce. Yes. I also wanted to say, what is it? Maybe, you know, poor Bishop Cooper? What? Do you know? Okay. Um, poor Bishop. Poor Ho Bishop Cooper is a, I think it's a. Poor Bishop know. Hooper. Poor. Poor. Poor Bishop <laughs> Hooper. Is a, is a duo, I think, male-female music. Duo, and they are doing an every song project, so they're covering all of them. And oh, I think they're quite good too. And they're quite so, good. And you can listen to them on. on so, poor Bishop Hooper. 
Check that out. YouTube. Bye, Julia. Um, I was just going to go back to the canon. Um, yeah, it just made me reflect on, like, just thinking of the origins of Islam or mm. um, Joseph Smith receiving these tablets. Um, it's just sort of like, it feels like, you know, we have to take their word for it. Um, you know, nobody was around and, you know, I'm Allah's messenger. Um, it's just a very different experience than reflecting on how many people were involved in both the songs and the whole of the canon. And, you know, I, I, I have always thought it's just such a beautiful process, but hmm. it just made me reflect more on why um, I would distrust something that was just like, you know, I, you weren't there. I had this crazy thing. God spoke to me. Um, and here are these words, you know. Um, it's, it's yeah, that's great. So Julia was just saying to those on Zoom that uh, she would distrust something like the Quran, you know, what what Muhammad receives from Allah, and no one's there, or Joseph Smith, the uh, the golden tablets from Moroni, the angel Moroni, and no one's there to verify it. Um, and even his brother, he. Joseph is in one room reciting it and his other brother is sketching it out. So his brother doesn't even see the tablets. And then they happen to get lost golden tablets in upper New York. Um, and so you would distrust that. And the Bible is so beautiful because God has worked through so many people. And it's not just in one time and one place. And I do find that amazing is that the Psalms, I believe, is a microcosm of the whole Bible of how God uses different people, different times and culture and circumstances, different personalities, different genres. And they all come together to tell a corporate story. And not only a corporate story, but one that is fulfilled in history. At moments and fully in Jesus. Um, and so, yeah, it, it lends itself to a lot, to an authority that other, other um, supposed revelations don't have. Um, yeah, and just the way he uses the songs or, you know, can say, you know, it's not my time yet. Or like, why are you, you know, why are you having me do this now? Like, um, yeah. And also, yeah, it makes me think of when you were saying that is that, and going back to that thing about humanity, is that, you know, what is received from Smith or from um, with Muhammad is, is that, that the scriptures are given in such a way through God's people. It says a lot about what God thinks of humanity and how he wants to communicate his truth, not just from the sky and some special revelations in a moment of ecstasy, but wants to give us his communication uh, through his people over a wide period because his word is to be incorporating. His revelation isn't supposed to just give a certainty or certitude or facts or commands um, or cryptic knowledge, but actually is to lead us to love one another and to love him um, and to be in touch with reality. Um, uh, and so, yeah, it is, it's a much more corporate way of looking at God's revelation that he wants to work with his people, not in spite of them. That's a really good point. Mm -hmm. Is there any other religion that incorporates so many people like the Bible does? I don't know of any. 
I know that people uh, have had tremendous books of where um, you you might say the Buddhist texts. There's 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 a lot of um, people that have written, um, but they don't tell a coherent story. So it's not as if other religions haven't had multiple kind of things. And even Joseph Smith would have the Doctrine and Covenants were multiple revelations that he received. Um, and I won't say anything about them. But to say that what's unique about the Bible is that God is working not just multiple different kind of revelations, but they all tell one corporate revelation that is fulfilled. Um, so it is unique to the Bible and it's amazing. So whenever someone dismisses the Bible as not authoritative or patchwork, they don't know what they're talking about. They're not looking at um, looking at its dynamism. Ooh. And, and, you know, there was uh, one Chinese lady that came. She was a neuroscientist and she came and and she and I had just learned some stuff about China at the time. So it was just incidental, I guess, providential. But she said, um, how can you say that the Bible is true? And I've given lots of different reasons for it. But at that time, I said, because everyone in the Bible looks terrible. Um, and I had learned about China, and it happens with American politics, that you blame everything on the past president or the past emperor. And so you end up burning the records and put your name forward as the best. But in the Bible, no one turns out good. Even the disciples who become like leaders of the church, all their dirty laundry is like out there for immortality, you know? Um, and the only hero through the story is God. And that God is one who bends low. So, um, so I, I felt that one of the remarkable authenticators of God working through the Bible is that there's no human propaganda in terms of human advantage, not even for Jewish people. People think, oh, this is just Jewish propaganda that's just trying to get them, you know, a particular part of land. But that's because they're not reading the text very carefully because they say, God said, this is not your land. And in fact, the whole world is my land. Um, you know, uh, go settle in Babylon. So it's just, um, yeah. Yes. If, if it's come to its natural resolution, that's okay. But um, you're the natural resolution. Brilliant. <laughs> home, I, hope. Um, I might need you to read out the verse again where Jesus is, uh, he's saying, um, the Lord said to my Lord, right? Mm. Um, it, yeah, for the rest of the question, I want to get it right. Can I just read Psalm 110? Because I can't remember what passage. I can look, I can bring it back up. Uh, do you need do you need Jesus need saying Jesus it? Jesus' words. Okay. He says, um, after like David said, in the spirit or something to that effect. Okay. I was just wondering if you knew what you might have meant by that. Oh, how is it then that David, speaking by the spirit, by the spirit. calls him Lord? Uh, yeah, in Matthew 22. Um, excellent. Excellent. I'm glad that you saw that. Um, you know, um, Peter also talks about, um, because what he's saying is that, <clears throat> I wish I could call up particular texts. It was understood that the Spirit had given them the word, the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. 
and that they weren't carried on by their own delusions, illusions, ideas, propaganda, uh, but that actually the spirit was guiding them um, in their writing. It doesn't mean that their eyes rolled back and they like started like divine download, but it was that what they wrote, they knew that this was given by the spirit. Uh, and so you have in Hebrews, I uh, can't remember, but he's talking about the Psalms. And it says, um, uh, the spirit said, and then quotes the Bible, the passage, the Psalm. And then the same Psalm is quoted later on. It says, and David said, mm -hmm. so it sees that there's a corporate work. So awesome. David speaking by the spirit. So it's not like they're antagonistic or overtaken, but that they're, they're working um, concomitantly, maybe, uh, together. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. So, so that actually is, um, when people have developed the doctrine of scripture, when they talk about, well, is it human or is it God? And we can fall off on either side yeah. and people are like, well, it's just human. It's just a cultural artifact. And that's what you're going to usually learn in a secular university. That's just a cultural artifact. And it's just has political propaganda all over it. And it's patchwork. Or you have some people who can be very fundamentalistic about it and say, um, it's the word of God. Um, they're trying to protect its wordness, the, like, um, but it can become um, where no humans, they don't want any human fingerprints because it taints it. Hmm. But the Bible itself doesn't even speak that way. It says that, no, there's a mystery of God working in union with us. And I think about when the spirit descends on the disciples at Pentecost. What I love about that is that they communicate in their own language. So it shows you that when the spirit has come on and anointed these people in a special way, they can still be understood in their language, in their culture. Um, and so I believe that when the spirit uses us, speaks through us, it doesn't diminish or override our humanity, but works through our humanity to communicate something more than we could be possibly aware of. Mm. So that's how I think about it. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Okay, well, let's call it to an end, a close. Um, if you want to talk to me afterwards, uh, great. Okay, thanks. Cool.